During this episode, we are recording through Skype. We're not doing it face-to-face, so we do apologize in advance for any garbled audio at certain points. I second that. I'm your host, Lacey Ramsey. And I'm your host, Alex Brennan. We are a podcast for the strange and unusual. Every other Friday, we release an episode where one of your hosts teaches the other about a topic or event that we find to be strange or unusual. On Monday, before the episode is released, we post our custom-themed cocktail recipe so you have time to get the ingredients and drink along with us. So sit back and relax. It's time for Crackpot Cocktail Hour. Hearing from the grief-stricken family of a teenage boy allegedly coaxed into committing suicide last summer. The girl charged with involuntary manslaughter in connection with his death is free on bail. It was at this Kmart parking lot in Massachusetts where last July, 18-year-old Conrad Roy III sat running a gas-powered water pump inside his pickup truck. Shortly before he died from carbon monoxide poisoning, Roy was exchanging text messages with his then 17-year-old girlfriend, Michelle Carter. He asked her to do a Romeo and Juliet. He knows she's out of McLean Hospital. He knows she has her own issues. She's already told him she's been suicidal in the past. And now he asks her to do a Romeo and Juliet, and she replies, oh, fuck no, we're not dying. It doesn't seem that she understands the, um, the gravity of the situation. It's just in- insensitive to, um, to post pictures like that, especially given that there's a court ban for her not to be on social media. Conrad, want to help me find a clear way? He's inviting her, asking her to assist him, encourage him to kill himself. He's asking again. Michelle Carter, now 18, has pleaded not guilty to involuntary manslaughter. She's due back in court October 2nd. Yeah, could you imagine, like, if this happened in, like, the late 90s? Oh, my God. (laughs) Try to get onto your dial-up internet. AOL is crashing every other day. We'd be writing each other, like, literal letters. I would write it like an old-time, like, Civil War letter. The months grow long, and I miss (laughs) your face. But memories of you still give me strength for the times ahead. (laughs) It's it's only taking an hour to print because it's... Look, here's the amount of notes I had, Alex. (laughs) I had about 26 pages. And I whittled it down, and now it's 21, and that includes, like, sources and um, potential quotes. So it's 17 (laughs) without all of that. Just be really trying to tear it down. But I'm excited about it. I'm excited about talking about it. I'm not gonna. I'm excited about this one for a while. So I'm excited. It's true. I changed it from another one because I was like, I just feel super called to this one, and I can't ignore whatever that is inside me. That's like you have to do this. All right, you ready to get rolling? Not that we haven't been rolling this whole time. You know, we have some great banter to put in there, and sometimes I find the best stuff in just us chatting. I like that. All right. 
So, this is our second True Crime and Wine on the Dimes episode. Yay! Um, I found a canned wine in my refrigerator this morning. Ah! And I was like, this is perfect! I'm gonna drink this while we're on the podcast! And I looked That's at amazing. it, and it was rosé. Oh, god damn it! I was like, choose life. Yeah, thank you for choosing life. Thank you for not self-critting while we're doing this podcast. <laughs> Just like swelling up. <laughs> Alex, do you need an EpiPen? I'm going to tell all right, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you wonder what it is for a minute. I know our listeners already know what it is because they clicked on the episode, and I'm sure it's in the title. So I'll start out by talking about the wine that okay. I've chosen for this one. I realized in our last episode that I didn't give out the mocktail recipe over the air. <laughs> <laughs> it is on our Instagram, but I realized I didn't do that. So anyone who's wondering why I didn't do that, it's because I didn't and I got discombobulated and forgotten. I'm We're sorry. Out of our routine. <laughs> But I'll give our mocktail recommendation first on this one, since I forgot last time. Our mocktail recommendations begin at episode 13, so if you're looking for them before then, they don't exist. Drink up, uh, bitches. Today, it's brought to you by Carl Jung's De-alcoholized Riesling. All right. Which is a thing that exists. <laughs> it's about 0.2% uh, ABV, so it's not totally free of alcohol, but it's less than kombucha. All right, cool. So it's not like psychoactive in any way. Uh, the tasting notes on Carl Jung's de-alcoholized Riesling are sour green apple and citrus at the forefront. This brings us to the wine for our 20th episode, which is Chateau St. Michel's Dry Riesling Vintage 2017. Nice, um, good dessert wine. Chateau St. Michel is Washington State's oldest winery, and this is one of my favorite wines. I love dry wines, and I love Rieslings, and it's like the perfect combination of those two things. So... When I taste this dry Riesling, it hits me with green apple. I had a bit of apricot taste and then like a sour cherry finish. So I chose the other, um, the de-alcoholized Riesling because of the green apple notes. I felt like those were probably similar enough. Um, my husband, who does not usually like wine, likes this wine and was like, does that mean it's a bad wine? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, probably not. So I chose this wine because I love it. It's one of my favorites. And because of the winery, the name of the winery is Chateau St. Michel. And today we're discussing the true crime texting teen suicide case of Michelle Carter and Conrad Roy. Oh, shit! Yes! Oh, I was actually just looking at the documentary like two days ago, I Love You Now Die. Um, I did watch it when it first came out, but the other day I was just like, I don't know why, but I feel like I should watch this. I didn't. I'm glad Something... you didn't watch it again. <laughs> Something to my soul said, resist. <laughs> So I'm going to take us on a winding path through the story, and that is going to include some content warnings and some resources. I want to do this responsibly, and so part of the reason this episode is going to be a longer one is to make sure that we're covering our bases and handling this in a responsible way and not just, like, talking about suicide without thinking about potential consequences of that. Yeah, understandably so. So that starts with two separate content warnings. One, you are welcome to edit out, but it is a warning I wrote specifically for you. Oh, <laughs> thank you. You get your very own personalized warning. It reads, we are going dark today. I trust you'll remember that you're in charge of editing this and that you don't have to discuss anything you don't want to, but I'm going to get real honest with my shit today. Um, I know we both struggled with depression and thought about suicide, and we might both need some extra self-care after this episode, so be gentle with yourself and take breaks if you need to during the editing process, because it's, it's a big one. Oh. Yeah. The next statement will make more sense as we get into the episode, but I have to say it, so I just need to put this out here 
it's not an intervention or anything. <laughs> but I need you to know up front that I love you and I would fight for you and your life no matter what, no matter how many times you told me not to. I love you and same. I would do whatever I can to keep you with us because I love you. I appreciate that. Um, here's our content warning for everybody on this episode. This episode is a heavy one that deals with suicide, self-harm, emotional abuse, disordered eating, and depression. There are detailed discussions regarding these topics, and if you don't feel safe listening to this one, or if it gives you a bad feeling in your gut to think about listening, or if you get a bad feeling in your gut while you're listening, feel free to skip out, listen to a different episode, go back to one of our old ones like Human Perception that's a little bit lighter, like take care of yourself, don't feel the need to push through if this is something that makes you too uncomfortable or feels too close to home to deal with right now. We're all under a lot of stress. Yeah, we do have happier episodes. Yes. So this one I feel like is necessary and interesting, but I don't want to force anyone through it. So that's kind of my disclaimer about that. Yeah. If you want a fun episode, uh, listen to Animal Mating or for a happy ending, listen to Jakarta Incident. Good recommendations. I like it. If you or a loved one is in need of a referral for mental health assistance, you can visit the SAMHSA website. That stands for Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration at samhsa.gov. Or call the National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP, which is 1-800-662-4357. So those are some phone numbers and websites you can go to. If you or a loved one are considering suicide, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is at 1-800-273-8255. And they also have a website where they offer live web chats. You don't have to call someone and talk on the phone. You can like go to this website and chat with them. And it's suicidepreventionlifeline.org. So it's a great resource. That is awesome. I didn't realize that you could actually do live chats now. Yeah. I mean, it makes um, sense, especially like... We're all living online now, so... Totally. If um, I can talk to someone online at, like, Best Buy, then I should be able to talk to someone at the suicide prevention line. <laughs> I like that, yeah. If I can, like, spend money on buying, like, some electronic stuff, I should be able to, like, access mental health care online. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I want to give a shout out to some musical inspiration for this episode. There's a song called um, Your Heart is a Muscle the Size of Your Fist, and I want us to like link to the YouTube uh, of it on our site, which I think we can. It's by a band called Ramshackle Glory, and it's just like this amazing, touching portrait of like the people in a person's life and what makes them unique and lovely, and then also someone in their life who killed themselves and like part of the loss that they feel and part of the idea like the title of the song is like basically you have to keep fighting for your life your heart mm -hmm. is a muscle the size of your fist so keep on hold uh so keep on loving keep on fighting and hold on hold on hold on for your life is the chorus oh, that's um, beautiful yeah so it just like it, it makes me like feel less alone in the world and it reminds me that like I can use some of my rage and existential terror to like fuel my fight for survival. Yeah, we'll put that up. Um, all right. I feel like I've got a million introductions. I keep saying all right, but there's so many things. <laughs> I want to talk about kind of what brought me to needing to discuss this case because I think like it's an interesting one. It's nuanced, but like I for sure was like, I'm, I have personal reasons for wanting to get into this. So one of the main reasons I need to talk about this case, apart from my own off and on depression, 
is my love and concern for the people in my life who also struggle with depression. In high school, one of my best friends threatened to kill herself. She told me she would never talk to me again if I told anyone about it, but because I had a strong support system and enough knowledge about what was available to me and who could help, I decided to tell on her anyway, and I talked to a school counselor about it. I mean, I figured if she killed herself, I would still never get to talk to her again. So mm -hmm. better she be alive than me try to keep the friendship if that was the standard. Better she was she's set. alive and mad at you than not here at all. Exactly. Totally. Um, so I told on her and uh, <laughs> it did not go super well. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it turns out that like, <laughs> it's a complicated issue. And even school counselors don't always do the best job of handling things but what did happen is it interrupted that thought process for her and it put her on a different path and made her to where she is still alive and with us today and somebody who I treasure in my life so I think I made the right call and I want to give other people as much power and information to do the same thing if they're ever put in that position yeah that's 100% the right call thanks um she was mad at me for quite a while <laughs> but ultimately thankful ultimately like again you know. better mad and alive than not here at all yeah totally the other side of the coin for me why I need to talk about this case which I really struggled with whether I wanted to share this but it's so foundational to why I have to do it right now I know from firsthand experience that sometimes there's nothing you can do to help someone if a person doesn't tell you what's going on with them if they refuse help if they behave abusively toward you for any reason, even if it's out of their depression, if you are just trying to survive yourself and you don't have the knowledge or resources or fucking energy to do anything to help them, sometimes there's nothing that you can do. And I needed to proce process that for myself mm -hmm. as well. My dad did not let anyone know what was going on with his health. He had cancer and multiple strokes and he didn't tell anyone until everything was way too late. And I, it wasn't an active suicide, but it was not getting the help that he could have gotten for quite a while. Yeah. Um, he isolated himself and he either couldn't or wouldn't accept help. His entire life he kind of lashed out when people started getting too close. And I really needed to research this and confront these like emotions within myself um, to really cement to myself that his dying wasn't my fault because I still wondered what else I could have done. Like, I think everyone does when you lose someone. Mm -hmm. So it's both, we need to help people that we can when we can, and we need to accept the reality that we cannot always help everyone. Yeah, that's unfortunately so true. So, uh, dark episode, like I said. <laughs> <laughs> um, my uh, first encounter with suicide uh, was when I was in the sixth grade. And there was a kid who was a year ahead of us at our school who uh, unfortunately committed suicide. So a seventh grader did it. And this was at a very, very Christian school. So it was a very complex topic about And um, I didn't know this kid personally, but I remember there were some kids that were saying that the week that on Friday, because he killed himself for the weekend, uh, that Friday, he'd been talking about how his life was just like this dark storm and how he couldn't be here anymore. And he had, you know, suicidal ideation and he spoke about it. And a lot of those kids, you know, blamed themselves. And it's like, you're a sixth grader. You're 12 years old. 
at the oldest. This, right. You don't know if someone's, you know, just teenage angst, if, like, you know, he really meant it. You guys don't know what's going on in his life, so you can't hold yourself responsible for that. But I do remember counselors being in our school all week, and I ended up going to one of the counseling sessions because it was like, even though I didn't know this kid, just, like, the fact that, it's like, someone in this school did this. I just, I need to talk about this. Totally. Um, yeah, that is so, so young. Seventh grade. Yeah, yeah. I think he, he must have been like 12 or 13 at the time. But yeah, that was my uh, first brush with uh, suicide. Yeah. Um, and so you're absolutely right. People that age generally aren't equipped and don't know what to do if someone is saying those kinds of things to them. Like, if you haven't had any education about this, how are you supposed to respond as a 12 or 13 year old, you know? Yeah, and it also doesn't seem like something you should be like telling a 12 or 13 year old because at that point you're still a kid. And yeah. so, I mean, it's not exactly like parents are like, we're going to give you the talk about the birds and the bees. And now we're going to talk about what happens if your friend starts talking about jumping off a bridge. Right. Yeah. And it's, and I would argue that I think like a public health issue is our lack of mental health education, like in general, and knowing what to do to take care of our own mental health, let alone helping a friend who's going through a crisis. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's again, like part of my aim of this episode is especially as a former mental health professional, like I feel this need to get some information out there. And so if people are in a position where they care about someone who's talking about suicide, maybe they will know more what to do or know when they're out of their depth and to reach out to somebody else. So here we go. Here's the super simplified story. And we're going to dig deep into it but i'm gonna give you just the simple version first okay boy and girl meet text for two years boy kills himself in a kmart parking lot text messages are found on his phone from his girlfriend along with the usual i love yous there are texts from her encouraging him repeatedly to kill himself seems pretty sinister pretty cut and dried the girl is a monster and the boy and his family are victims but as we'll hear over the next 400 hours, there's more to the story. <laughs> so here's here's a bit of education about suicide and depression. I want to get into the story, but again, I need to give some information about stuff. <laughs> so um, yeah, like I said, I do this with a sense of duty and I want to give people information to help when they can, but I've got two big caveats. Caveat one, you are not responsible for another person taking their own life. If you kill that person, you have murdered them. If that person commits suicide, they have killed themselves. You did not make the choice for them. They made the choice in the end. Mm -hmm. And part of like part of my need to put this out there is that people who are grieving might experience some of that too. In an airplane crash, you are instructed to secure your own oxygen mask before you secure anyone else's. You cannot help anyone if you yourself are incapacitated. There are theoretically a million things that you can do to help someone that you love who is suicidal, but you can't do very much if you are struggling under your own shit and too bogged down by whatever it is you're going through. So your job is to tell a qualified person or another responsible adult and hand it off to somebody who is qualified to help. You are obligated to take care of yourself first. If a person who is expressing suicidal thoughts to you is someone who puts your physical or emotional safety in danger, it's your job to not continue to expose yourself to that and to try to get them help away from you. <laughs> Those are my main caveats. Like, you do not need to set yourself on fire in order to keep another person warm. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> all, the, all those things said, I want to give out some of the read you all lists or anything, but I want to just direct 
people to where to go to get more information about this mm -hmm. kind of shit. Uh, there's a great page on the Psychology Today website called Lies Depression Will Tell You, which I thought was like, everyone could use that. Yeah, they tell you a lot of lies. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so the page uh, Lies Depression will tell you on the Psychology Today website lists a whole bunch of lies and it gives you some truths to combat them. But I wanted to give a couple of them just so that if you hear somebody saying something like this, it kind of can be a little tip off of like, this is where their mind is at right now. So um, saying like, nothing matters. There's no hope. I'll never amount to anything. I'm not trying hard enough. No one can fix me. Things like that. Just little bits of red flags to be aware of. Yeah, I've said some <clears throat> of those things. <laughs> Look, who among us hasn't? <laughs> but those are those are like kind of tips that somebody might be depressed or that you yourself might be depressed if you notice yourself start thinking those things. It's like, is this the truth or is this just the depression talking? Mm -hmm. The Suicide Prevention Resource Center has a page called Warning Signs Someone is at Immediate Risk of Suicide and it gives the top three most serious signs that would merit a call to the Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which are talking about wanting to die or kill yourself which seems pretty clear. Yeah. Looking for a method to kill yourself or talking about having no reason to live or no hope. Mm -hmm. All of those things are pretty big signs that somebody needs immediate help. Uh, they list other signs, things like behaving recklessly, sleeping a whole lot more or less, seeming agitated, withdrawing. There are a bunch of other signs that could go along with it that are also listed, but I wanted to give the top most immediate ones. So those are kind of the main pieces of psychoeducation I wanted to give, uh, NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness, uh, has a website that says how to ask someone about suicide and it walks you through if you don't know how to have this conversation with someone, if you've been hearing some of these things from them but you feel awkward, it gives you a lot of great things to broach the conversation and ways to handle it. So I wanted to be responsible in presenting this episode for sure. All right, I'm gonna, let's dive into this timeline. Okay. I want to give a little background on um, Conrad and Michelle, and I want to say most of my research did come from the HBO documentary. There are other articles out there and things that I look to for like filling in the gaps and details. And the HBO documentary, the way that it presents this case is it starts out with like the prosecution's case against Michelle, and then it presents in the second part the defense's case like to exculpate her. And I broke it up into more of a linear timeline format of like what we know happened when, and then when we get into the trial, there are things that were like revealed at trial that I'll talk about then too. Okay, cool. All right, so in 2011, Conrad's mother is arrested and accused of hitting Conrad's father in front of him and their siblings. This it will come into play later. And either 2011 or 2012, and this is before they know each other, uh, Michelle comes close to killing herself after she's on Prozac for a short period of time. So it's possible that she had a bad reaction to the medication. In early 2012, Michelle is 15 years old and she's on a traveling softball team with a girl named Alice. They instantly bond and Michelle later tells a friend that Alice made her feel things that she had never had before and also made her feel like she had a best friend. Aww. Michelle, I know, it's like not being so alone. Michelle tells this friend that she and Alice became flirty and that it wasn't awkward and that she thinks maybe she's bi. Cool. Yeah. Right around the time Michelle meets Conrad, Alice's mom has Alice cut off contact with Michelle because Michelle was getting her into trouble or something. Mm, shade. Yeah. I also was like, hmm, what kind of trouble? The trouble of not being totally straight? Um, to me, it seems like this was probably Michelle's first real heartbreak. Yeah, and at that age, heartbreak is huge. 
Right. And I think like one of the things you hit on that I want to really underscore is like at that point, she's 15. Like 15 is so young. Like you don't have any experience of, like of the world or like deep emotional shit like that generally. And so that first heartbreak is like the worst thing you've ever felt. Yeah. Yeah. God, yeah. Um, I, I met my husband when I was 15 and we split up and like thinking about when we broke up, like when we were that young, it is still like some of the worst pain that I think I've ever experienced. Yeah, I had my first my first boyfriend when I was 15. He ended up being a creep, so I wasn't exactly heart, uh, heartbroken when we broke up. But I do remember there was a weird incident with a, a girl that we both knew where uh, I got sick for a week. Like, I'd asked him out one week, and then the next week I was sick. And then I found out, like, as soon as I started feeling better, that they were dating. And I remember being so upset, and, like, I was crying and everything. And my mom was so pissed off that she actually called up the girl and chewed her out. Wow. (laughs) I was just like, holy shit, don't mess with my mom. Yeah, thanks, mom. And then I dated him afterwards because I'm smart. (laughs) Well, you know, that's what happens. Your prefrontal cortex is also not done developing at that age, which is how you make decisions. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, that's another thing that kind of underlies this whole thing. It's like, just remember, these people are 15 at that point. So in spring of 2012, Michelle and Conrad meet and fall in love. She's 15, he's 16. They're both visiting their relatives in Florida. He's visiting his great aunt. She's visiting her grandma and his great aunt and her grandma are friends. And so they introduce Michelle and Conrad, which is, I think, kind of a cute little meet cute. Um, They live an hour apart and they meet only five times in person. But during over the course of two years, they exchange thousands of text messages. Their text messages are flirty, but sometimes Conrad pretends to insult her, saying things like, fuck you, bitch. And then something like, just playing. So it's that like teenage sense of like, I'm gonna push my boundaries and like see what I'm allowed to say to you and see what I'm not allowed to say to you and see how you react to things. They repeatedly make plans to see each other, but it almost always falls through. They're like, oh, let's hang out, let's do this thing. But for whatever reason, it just doesn't happen most of the time. They're also teenagers living an hour apart. It's not exactly easy to meet up at that time. Exactly, I, I assume transportation is probably a bit of an issue. Yeah, yeah, also I mean like, could you imagine like having a 15 year old daughter and she's like, mom, I want to go like an hour away to visit my boyfriend who I've only seen a handful of times. Right. And I think like, it would also be easy to dismiss the relationship because it's like, is this guy really your boyfriend? This guy that you met once or twice and like you just text, it would be, you know, might not make sense to a mom. Yeah. But grandma <laughs> vouches for him. Yeah, that's right. I got a, I heard a great statement from Marin Kogan, uh, M-A-R-I-N Kogan. Uh, she's a New York Magazine columnist, and she stated, Conrad found in Michelle someone he could confine his dark thoughts in, and Michelle found someone that she could be emotionally intimate with almost immediately. They made each other both feel less alone. Teenage you love found a connection super- with someone? Right. I mean, who's not looking for connection? And I think, like, Teenage love is powerful partly because of the whole prefrontal cortex, partly because of your hormones, you don't have as much life experience, and partly because, at least for me, and I think a lot of teenagers, part of natural development is being distrustful of authority at that time and turning more toward your peer group for support. Mom and dad just don't understand me anymore. Exactly. And so it's like you and your friends and boyfriend and girlfriends can like create this world for yourself that you live in together, kind of. A note on the prefrontal cortex, it's... It's not done growing and developing. It's the last part of our brain to develop, and it's 
stops developing around the time we're 25. So it's like past 18, past 21, like you, you are a full grown adult at this point and your brain is still figuring out how to brain. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, brains figuring out how to brain are voting. <laughs> oh man, it's true. So we have all of the feelings, but at times we don't have enough experience or like neural connection to know how to safely process those feelings or mm -hmm. what to do about that. Uh, the prefrontal cortex helps people plan and make decisions. It helps you master having focus and attention. It gives you the ability to predict cause and effect and it helps you control uh, your impulses so that you don't act rashly. So it's like a lot of really important adult stuff rolled up into that part of your brain. Um, I wanna add that 10 we years away from that fully developing. Yes, they're a full decade out from that being totally cooked. They are a fourth grader away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you also like at 15, at least for me, like you don't know what you don't know. And so there's this like, overconfidence invincibility thing almost of like no one can tell me shit and it's like oh honey you, you just have no idea how little you know i want to also add that we have no idea what effect it has on our brains to be continually connected via text message and social media that's like a new thing in human development that we just don't fully understand back to the story <laughs> i just like there's so much in this that i'm like I, I want to really draw out like the nuances of the things that are like maybe influencing the people's behavior in this. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, did you ever have a, an online boyfriend? Oh, I totally did. His name was like Slinky Boy 08 or some nonsense like that. Oh, Slinky Boy. <laughs> His real name was Ryan, and he called me like Honey and Sweetheart. And I was like, Ooh, a boy is calling me these names on the internet. And it all felt very adult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, We've all had an online boyfriend. <laughs> um, I definitely had uh, my share of online crushes, and it's so weird when it's a uh, when it's digitally. It's not. We were talking earlier today about how we miss seeing each other actually face to face. And it's like, yeah, I get to talk to you through Marco Polo. We get to do our podcast and everything, but I don't get to see you. Yeah, and there's something I think to be said for like if a person's presence in your life is almost entirely virtual. Mm -hmm. Like, what? how does that affect the way that you think of that person as a person, as an object, as a story you're telling yourself? Like, I think the lines of reality are easier to blur when somebody's not there with you. Yeah. You can be anybody online. That's online, right. Online, I'm 6'5". <laughs> <laughs> and people just assume you're a dude because yeah. of your Reddit posts and names. <laughs> I've actually, I, I get that a lot when I'm online. A lot of people think I'm a dude. <laughs> I, I think that's a compliment coming from the online community, which I'm not going to get into. <laughs> uh, about five months into their relationship, this is in October of 2012, Conrad texts Michelle to tell her about his recent suicide attempt and hospitalization. He also says, quote, Just remember, I'm not the person you thought I was. The voices in my head tell me to and tells her that if he doesn't respond if he doesn't respond to her text it's because he's killed himself this is 5 months in jesus christ that's a lot of course i mean at that age that seems like a totally normal thing to like say if i'm not it's normal to talk about suicide 5 months in but you'll tell each other pretty much everything at that time sure and like 
it was this immediate intimacy. And I think there's something that feels safer about not having somebody right in front of you too. Like something about like, well, I can type a text message and I'm not like looking this person in the eyes as they're learning this about me. Yeah. And also like when you're a teenager, like you were saying, because you have so little life experience, like everything about that first relationship is so fast, so immediate and so urgent. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, there's all this love available in the world for me and I can just have it. And you don't think about why a person might want to pump the brakes. Yeah. How many times in high school did you hear someone say, I've met my soulmate? Granted, you did meet your soulmate in high school. Sure. But how many <laughs> times did you see people be like, oh, he's my everything. She's my queen. And they're broken up three months later. It's like you don't actually even know each other. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the first time he reaches out and talks to her about feeling suicidal, it was after the fact. So it wasn't like, I'm feeling this way. It was like, this happened. And it might happen again, basically. That's October 10th. October 27th, Conrad is admitted to the ER for another suicide attempt. Jesus Christ, it's such a small window. Yeah, it really is. There's just like something so sad to me about like thinking about how close together those dudes are. Yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering like what kind of uh, help he had, what kind of support system he had, why, if he was at such a great risk, why he was even released after the first time. Yeah, it seems part, like, I can see the holes in the mental health system. Yeah. Um, I'm going to open up again, like I did in our Satanic Panic episode. Uh, As you know, I have had uh, several suicide attempts in my life. Um, My most recent one was a couple years ago. Was it three years ago now or something? I don't know. It it still feels recent, but also a long time ago. But in each of my suicide attempts, which makes me an expert... It's not expertise anyone should have. When you try to kill yourself, um, the first thing they do at the hospital is they restrain you once you're out of your immediate danger and sometimes when you're still in your immediate danger because they want to keep you from uh, hurting yourself and they also want to make sure that you're not going to interfere with the medical staff while they're tending to you. Um, And then you're put under psychiatric evaluation. And usually there'll be a caseworker on site. They'll usually put you into whatever psychiatric ward they have available, uh, if they have rooms available. And then someone will come and talk to you and they want to get to know about you, what led to this. If you have friends and family nearby, they're going to want to talk to them and they're going to evaluate what your support system looks like. And if you answer their questions right, and if uh, they believe you have a strong enough support system, They'll let you go, but sometimes they'll put a caveat on it. For example, when I uh, tried when I was 17 years old, the caveat was, you are allowed to go home, but you have to do a mandatory three months worth of therapy and go twice a week. So the fact that I know this about the mental health system because I've experienced it firsthand and the hospital tells them at the beginning of October, you can go home. And then at the end of October, he's back. Makes me wonder what the hell happened? Like, where was the ball dropped? I totally wonder that too. Um, And one of the hard things about this case is like, I tried to dig for some of that information and like, I couldn't find it. Like he, it's talked about how he was seeing a counselor at one point. The documentary mentions that. So I know that he did have some kind of mental health. Uh, assistance, but I don't know how much he engaged in the process, what that was like for him, like whether people were trying to meet him where he was at, what the justification was for letting him out of the hospital. Yeah, there's so many questions about how this fell apart in that specific yeah. way. And I also wonder like how seriously the family took this. 
I too wonder that because I'm like, if you've got a kid who's being hospitalized for trying to kill himself, and then it happens again in another like really short time frame, like I feel like that's rally to action. Like as a family, you've got to figure out how to be here for this person. Yeah, I, I've seen it firsthand where people uh, will attempt to commit suicide, and then afterwards the family is like, "Oh no, it was just uh, a cry for attention, or it was overblown, or it wasn't what everyone thought it was." When it's like. Even if it was a cry for help, the fact that somebody did this to themselves to put themselves in that situation is dangerous enough for you to take it seriously. Agreed, totally. And I want to also add to that that like attention is something that we, a need for attention is something we as a society demonize, but it's something that we all have. Everyone mm -hmm. needs attention. Babies need to be held or they will die from lack of being held. Like we need other people to know that we exist and to care about that. It's a survival skill. Yeah. Yeah, so I I just feel so bad for him because I feel like there were so many little areas that even just in this one month that should have been there for him, that should have been helping him, and it seems like every safety net had a hole in it. Yeah, um, yes, that is, it's part of the tragedy of the case, for sure, is the, the failure of the system. A year before Conrad kills himself almost to the day, July 13th, 2013, Corey Monteith from Glee is found dead from an overdose. There's a Glee tribute episode three weeks later where they do not explain the uh, cause of the character's death. Michelle Carter occasionally quotes Glee in their texts and sometimes acts like Leah Michelle's words about mourning Cory Monteith are her own words, and she sometimes acts like her words of love are Michelle's own words, and so she is deeply internalizing mm -hmm. Leah Michelle's feelings toward losing Cory Monteith. Yeah. Uh, if anyone's seen that episode, The Quarterback, it is it is a heavy one. It's a perfect yes. tribute, but it is a heavy one. And I like that they made the choice. Like it doesn't like to not acknowledge or really like say it like go into being mad about him for killing himself because like a lot of people that's like respond with anger about that and they're like that's not what we're here to do. We're here to mourn him and we're here to like remember his life and not bring up his cause of death. We're talking, like, we're adult women with fully developed brains, and, like, the way we're talking about this is this was meaningful to us, and, like, we connected to watching, the, at least, it sounds like you did, I definitely did, to watching that episode oh, of, like, where, and so, imagine you are, you know, 16, and that's, like, something that you're seeing and feels, like, deeply important to you, and, like, how there's no brakes to pump in your mind about like just taking that all in and accepting those feelings yeah if anyone out there wants like a perfect example of what it's like to realize how emotional you are as a teenager versus how you are as an adult not to say that we're not emotional but it's just it doesn't have the same potency um I it's remember unchecked when I, yeah when i was a teenager i remember i would like see like all those birth control commercials and they'd be like less anxiety and mood swings and blah 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 and I was like I don't get that I was like I get the cramps but I mean I don't get like any of these other symptoms and then there was one day when I was like in my early to mid 20s where I was PMSing horde and I was just kind of like all over the place and then like the spell broke and I was like oh my god that's how I was all the time as a teenager just those unchecked hormones bouncing around all over the place and so if I did experience it when I was close to my period <laughs> I didn't know because I was just like my baseline I totally feel that <laughs> my mom uh, helped me get on birth control when I was 16 partly because I had bad acne and partly because she hoped that it would make me less of a bitch <laughs> <laughs> 
she she wasn't like abusive or didn't use that language for me but you know as an adult i understand yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah so like this is meaningful to us and we're not teenagers so just imagine how much more potent something like this is for someone like michelle A few months later, Michelle texts Conrad about the Glee tribute episode, saying that it made her think about what if he's not there anymore someday. That's October. I can see how that would affect a teenager, especially a teenager who has a boyfriend who has attempted suicide. Right. It's like I see myself in this show, and what happened was she lost this person, and I don't want to lose this person that I love and care about. Yeah. Um, So that's around a year before um, before he takes his life. A few months before, February 9th, twenty fourteen. Police officers respond to an assault and battery call where Conrad's father was hitting him. Jesus Christ. Conrad's father later states in the HBO documentary that he was disciplining Conrad and it was uh, it turned into a fight that got out of control and he would have done it the same exact way again. You piece of fucking shit. I'm, I'm sorry. If you're at the point where you're like fist fighting with your son... That's not an okay thing. Like, I, I don't... It truly isn't. It's not discipline. It, you can't ar- make an argument for that being effective parenting, hitting your child in the face with your fist. That's you trying to beat your child into submission. Yes, and he would have done it the same way again. And that's his stance and his statement after his son has died. So I, I don't want dad. to I don't want to turn anyone into a total villain, but if we had to point a finger, there's one we could point there. We also like it sounds like his dad much like perhaps couldn't allow himself to understand the reality of like, hey, this is what you did to your kid and it was not okay. Like he mm-hmm. seems like potentially one of those people who does not know how to take responsibility for themselves. But that's my that's just my analysis. I've known a few of those. <laughs> February 10th, the following day after the police officers respond to that call, Michelle texts all caps to Conrad, Conrad, what happened to you? And then, OMG, are you okay? Did you get beat up? He sends her a bruised picture of his face, which is swollen and red and like he had been in a fight, but the fight was with his dad and the text, fuck you. So Conrad is struggling and alienating her. That's a few months before Conrad dies. A month and a half before early June of 2014, Michelle starts really missing Alice. She texts a friend that she's comparing everyone to Alice. She texts that every love song reminds her of Alice. And the documentary says, um, the there's a reporter from Esquire. Uh, he says that Alice and her mother spoke to him just to refute the story, just to say Michelle is a sociopath. There was never anything romantic or physical between them, which maybe that means there was never anything romantic or physical between them. But to me, the need to come out and make a statement like that feels a little bit like me thinks the mother to protest too much. Yeah, the fact that as soon as they start getting close, it was Michelle's a bad influence. Yeah, feels a lot like no no daughter of mine's going to be gay, but maybe that wasn't what happened. I mean, so. and even if um, nothing romantic ever happened between them, I mean, she's still allowed to have a crush on another girl. Right, and even if it wasn't reciprocated, it sounds like Michelle's feelings were definitely real. Yeah. Yeah, and one of them, I love that uh, the way the Esquire reporter treats this in the documentary because he's like, honestly, like I felt a lot of things about Michelle, but I have to say in that moment, I really felt how alone she must have been. Yeah, uh, well, that's actually kind of nice to hear from an Esquire reporter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
for real. Um, I, I've got his name somewhere, but it's not on this document. So um, watch the documentary if you want to find out that guy's name. Yeah. Also, in early June of 2014, Conrad begins taking citalopram, which is a different depression medication than he'd been on. Suicidal thoughts are a known potential side effect of this medication, as is the case with many depression medications, and mm-hmm. that's magnified in teenagers as well. I've definitely Uh, been on a a few different medications until I found the right one. Yeah, and I think for most people it's a process. Like, rarely do you get on one and it's okay. And also I want to add a note that like, this is one reason why meds alone aren't enough to effectively combat depression a lot of the time because you might get on the wrong med and you need someone to talk you through and help you understand that it's just not working for you instead of you being like, oh, I guess the truth is that I'm depressed and shouldn't be here anymore. I think like having that safeguard of having a person to like help reel that in is really helpful. Um, I think usually a person who's depressed, just like any of us needs help working on like thought patterns and behaviors in addition to getting the brain chemistry right. Mm-hmm. So it was about a month and a half before in early June. This is a month before in mid-June of 2014. Conrad posts a video online about living with social anxiety and depression, how overwhelming it feels, how it's controlling him. He talks about wanting to be more proactive about managing it. He speaks about how a lot of people tell him he has to be happy with everything he has going for him. He says he has a great mom and a great dad most of the time, he qualifies, but that he's still depressed. He says there's something wrong with the serotonin in his brain and he maybe needs to replace it with something. He says that if he keeps talking, he thinks it's going to get better. And like, it's it's a hard video to watch. They, t- they post clips of it in the documentary, so I didn't search it out, but I just saw like what they showed. And it really just made me want to hug him. Like, he just seemed like he was hurting so badly and the fact that people around him were trying to tell him that like he shouldn't be feeling that way just kind of made it so yeah. much worse. I definitely got the, uh, you, uh, you choose whether or not to be happy. It's a choice you make every day. And it's like, it's not that simple. It 100%. I saw a thing that said, um, depression isn't a flaw of character. It's a flaw of chemistry. For real. For fucking real. And like, to an extent, if your brain is functioning properly and you're not depressed, Sure, happiness can be a choice. Like, you can choose where you put your focus in a day. And, like, is this going to, like, let me... Like, is this going to ruin my whole day and make me feel like shit about myself? And you you can have a little bit more of that wherewithal. But if your brain chemistry is not working right, then it feels like a lot. It's not really a choice. It's not something you can just talk yourself out of. Yeah, and it's not like anyone wants to be depressed. I mean, (laughs) speaking firsthand, I do not want to live in those bowels in that depth. I... It is not a comfortable existence. You don't want to be there. That's why you. That's why a lot of people ended up talking about suicide because you don't want to be there. If right. you could just flip it like a light switch and just turn on the happiness part, then it would be so much simpler. But it's just not how it works. So it's it's hard for me to see how alone he seems to feel in this pain and how like the people who should be there for him just don't know what to do and are saying things like, but you have a good life. I'm like, but it seems like maybe you're okay. And he's like, I'm just very deeply not okay. And it's like, no one can connect with that part of him that's hurting so badly. And they're also invalidating how he feels, which is compounding that. Yeah, it sounds to me like this has left him in a place of blaming himself for his own depression. Cause he's like, everyone tells me I should be okay. So there must be something wrong with me, which like, if there's something wrong with your brain, that's not like a failure on your part. 
Yeah, well, I told you this once. I one time had a friend tell me that I had, uh, in the eighth grade, told me I had a really bad case of uh, the poor little me syndrome. And what I was just an like, asshole thing to say. And I was just like, oh, so that means I'm not allowed to talk about this. And that means that I just need to bottle it all up. And I'm pretty sure that led to a lot of like down the line issues. But it was very much a, okay, message received. I'm not supposed to talk about this stuff or share how I'm feeling. And in reality, what that person was communicating was, I have literally no empathy for anyone, including myself, so I can't handle other people feeling bad because I can't even deal with my own bad feelings. And it's yeah. like shitty that it ended up on you. Um, I'm in a good so place the now. Good. I'm glad. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been a hard fight. I'm glad I'm there. Like, it's taken years. We all Did go back I... at the place sometimes. The last few weeks... Conrad establishes a pattern with Michelle where every day, just about, he says he's going to kill himself that night, and then he is alive the next morning. And this goes on for weeks. She would text him asking him not to leave her and try to convince him not to kill himself and like tell him that she needs him. And like he kept saying he was going to do this, and then she kept trying to pull him out of it. Like this process repeated over and over and over in the last few So weeks. exhausting, especially for a teenager. Yes! Like, how is this on her? So, in my view, you've got to know when you're out of your depth, which only really comes from perspective and from experience, and there's probably no way she could have, but I think the biggest mistake that she made was failing to reach out to another person at this point and yeah, taking she, this all on herself. Yeah, she should have at least like communicated with her family. It's like, hey, this is what's going on with my boyfriend. I don't know what to do. What do you guys think? Exactly. Um, even though his family his family was abusive and had issues, there it sounds like there were people in his family that she talked to sometimes that she could have also possibly reached out to. Failing that, this is something I want people to know that I don't know if she knew, you can ask the police to make a wellness check on somebody if you're worried about their immediate safety. You can call the police and tell them like they might kill themselves or I have reason to believe they're overdosing or I have an elderly friend who I haven't heard from in a while and you, they will go and check and make sure that person's okay if you have reason to believe they might not be and you won't get in trouble for that. Yeah, I, I called wellness check before. They were okay. But like, better safe than sorry, right? Like, better to call and find, like, make sure that someone's okay instead of like, oh, well, I haven't heard from them in a while and they were saying some pretty scary stuff, but like, probably it's fine. Like, you can just call the police and no, no one will like, send you a giant bill for doing so. I know we worry about that with ambulances. Um, so, yes, I, just putting that out there, that's a thing, it's a resource we have that not everyone knows. This is something I think I really appreciated that you said like how much it would wear on a person to hear just this repeated every couple of days going through the process of they might kill themselves. Now it's my job to try to talk them out of it. Um, I want to touch on here another nuance of this situation because it's not already nuanced enough. Though, like we were saying, any threat or talk of suicide should be taken seriously, even if it's like a so-called you know cry for attention or something. That's still something to be taken seriously and better safe than sorry. It is true that repeated threats to harm or kill yourself in the context of an intimate relationship can be a form of emotional abuse. Mm -hmm. Abusers are like us, and the us I'm referring to is people who are not abusive, but abusers are like us in that they're seeking to get their needs met. We're seeking to get our needs met. They just go about it in ways that cause harm to the people around them. I have a depressing story for this. Oh, God, this is the time and place. Um, 
So, as many people know, uh, sexual harassment is alive and well in the world, despite our attempts to curb it as much as possible. But a while ago, I used to live in uh, Tukwila, which is south of Seattle, and to get to my home, I used to have to take the light rail. Now, my husband would pick me up when I would get off at nighttime, and there was one night when I was on the light rail, and a I was going to say a gentleman, but then I realized, no, he was a fucking douchebag. I had an elderly man sit next to me who proceeded to say increasingly vulgar things to me like throughout the trip um and uh one point he noticed my wedding ring and uh mentioned it and i was like yeah i'm married my husband's picking me up at the station and he kind of like went back a bit and then he was like oh so you're gonna kick my ass for uh what I said to you was like, probably. He's like, you're going to tell him? I was like, yes, I am 100% going to tell him. And then I just fucking went off on him. Like, I just, I opened just like this unbridled rage. And I was like, I have listened to your fucking innuendos this whole trip. You've done nothing but harass me and you've gotten worse and blah, blah, blah. And then he uh, said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go home and I'm going to take all my medication and I'm going to kill myself because of what you said to me. (laughs) What the absolute fuck? And I I know that's like another way of like him like trying to like gain control of you have to let me continue to harass you or else the my death is going to be on your soul and your conscience. Right, like the price of me living is you feeling shitty harassed and diminished in public. Yeah, and uh, I was like, I'm sorry if you feel that way, but I'm not going to fucking put up with this. And I I got the fuck out of there. What I actually ended up doing, um, and I was later told by the police I did the absolute right thing. So uh, I actually stayed on the train when I went through my station because I saw him get off at my station. Uh, I called my husband from the train because the next stop was the airport. And I said, pick me up from the airport. This thing happened. I'm going to talk to the police department. And I figured... Airport means security cameras everywhere, guaranteed police presence, lots Smart. of people in case something happens. So I went to the police department. I took a picture of the guy's face on my cell phone. It's still on my Facebook page. So if anyone wants to know what that douchebag looks like. Um, so the police gave it. And then I asked one of the officers to stand with me until my husband arrived. And as she walked me out to the curb, she, was, she did tell me how I should carry a gun with me. But she did tell me I did the right thing. But it was a situation of a... In order to continue to assert my control so I can keep abusing you, I'm, I'm going to make this threat suicide. Yes. Uh, what an appropriate example. And I'm going to say that's not a, like, I'm going to call that a badass story because you acted so well and you like stood your ground and you had good boundaries and you kept your wits about you and you like used your prefrontal cortex to make some good decisions. <laughs> Uh, I also, you know, grew up very close to the police department, so <laughs> it was probably just years of training just, like, drilled into me. Um, but I'm also thinking about, because you're talking about how, you know, it, a lot of time abusers will, you know, use this as, like, a form of emotional abuse. And if he came from a family of abusers, I mean, that's been, like, his really only baseline for how to act, even if he has been on the receiving end of it. Right, because you're modeling, like you receive modeling from your parents and you learn how to be in the world from the people who teach you how to be people, which are generally your parents or guardians in your house. Yeah, I've heard, um, and I know it's not this black and white, but usually not, you know, 100% of the time, but it's not uncommon for someone, if they are abused, to go one of two paths, being they become an abuser themselves or they become more conservative and more aware. Yeah, um, or they become, or they can become another abuse victim uh, mm-hmm. again, and uh, yeah, and so, absolutely, that is like, I, I really like 
I struggled with whether to talk about this, but it felt so important because I think a lot of my life, like the joy in my life comes from really trying to understand something that's emotionally complicated. Mm -hmm. A resource for this uh, that I wanted to give out about this specific thing, uh, the website breakthesilencedv.org has some great info about how to respond if you're the victim of an abusive situation uh, where somebody is threatening to kill themselves repeatedly and how to unhook yourself emotionally from that process that they're using to control you. They also talk about creating a safety plan for yourself and anyone else at risk in your household. I want to just reiterate, like, I don't think I've said this sentence, but it's important, which is that abuse and depression are not mutually exclusive. An abuser can be depressed. Mm -hmm. Like, that does not make you responsible for them, and it doesn't give them the right to abuse you. They might not even know that they're abusing you or that what they're doing is wrong, but that doesn't mean it's okay that they're doing that. Yeah, and I mean, I don't want to vilify him in this case because, I mean, obviously he had a lot going on in his life, and I'm also trying to take into account, it's like, he too is a teenager. A lot of things that when you're a teenager are knee-jerk. I said and did some horrible things when I was a teenager. I was a real piece of shit. Um, And so it's like, no, he should not have been putting this on her. Yes, she was taking a lot of uh, that emotional toll on herself because of his actions. That being said, it's like he hasn't had the best example. He's depressed himself. And like any other teenager, he's lashing out and he just doesn't have the support system he needs. He shouldn't be acting that way. But they're both trying to get their needs met. It's just so detrimental to them, this process that they're engaged in with each other. Uh, Continuing along the last few weeks, um, June 19th, 2014, Michelle urges Conrad to seek help, quote, in a text. But the mental hospital would help you. I know you don't think it would, but I'm telling you, if you give them a chance, they can save your life. Part of me wants you to try something and fail just so you can go get help. Which is clearly misguided, but like, she cares. She like, like, is trying to argue with him whatever it needs whatever needs to happen to make him want to live yeah and i mean i'm sure she didn't take this into account but like if he had gone to a hospital or submitted himself voluntarily to a ward then he would be separated from his family and have a more stable support system right um yeah that's an excellent point conrad responds quote it doesn't help trust me michelle says quote so what are you going to do then Keep being all talk and no action and every day go through saying how bad you want to kill yourself or are you going to try to get better? Like, this is like a, you know, 16-year-old's version, uh, I think she's 17 at this point, 17-year-old's version of like tough love, of like, mm-hmm. look man, you keep saying this, you gotta like, you gotta try, like she's, you can hear her trying to rally him even again, if like most things she says, it's misguided. Yeah, it also sounds like, you know, she's, She's getting to her wits end. Yeah, the, the phrase, um, keep being all talk and no action every day, go through saying how badly you want to kill yourself. You can hear how weary she is of every day getting these text messages about how he's going to kill himself. Yeah, um, I'm not going to lie. Before we started this episode, I had an opinion on this case and it is rapidly changing. <laughs> Good. That is part of my aim, just in general. Like, not with you, but just in general. Yeah. Um, Conrad says, I can't get better. I already made my decision. <sighs> it's about a, about a month before. I have to acknowledge the benefit of hindsight here. We know that Conrad killed himself July 12th, 2014. Michelle only knew at this point that he'd been talking about killing himself for a while now, but hadn't. 
because she'd been hearing about this for months, possibly even years, it sounds like, off and on. I can imagine that it lost a lot of its sense of urgency and seriousness. Yeah. Um, if someone tells you every day they're going to kill themselves and then every day they're still there, I mean, it's like, how how much of this is just... I mean, clearly it's a cry for help and you need help, but you, how, you how seriously understand. should I take this? Exactly. I mean, for sure. Um, and so you can see, like, maybe she thinks he's just never going to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, we know now because we like are beyond this point in time that she was wrong and that anytime anyone tells you that it's too late as long as they're still alive it's not too late mm-hmm. like you know you can't take someone's word for it when they say it's too late no one can help me that's a depression lie i know this about myself um mm-hmm. i've had to fight it a lot but it's like when i was a teenager i did not like to be challenged i would like double down if challenged and not thinking you know your teenage boyfriend is going to say that like when he's like i'm beyond all hope that's that sounds to me like a teenager like doubling down being like no you need to understand like how upset i really am and uh i'm not gonna you know take your tough love that's just a teenager doubling down yeah yeah you can hear that like i know better than you like kind of mentality Mm -hmm. which like we all had i think um I'd argue that, you know, Michelle should have probably gone over Conrad's head way earlier than this point in time, but this is also an opportunity to involve outside resources. I can see why maybe she felt like his family wasn't a possible support, but he also undermined her ability to go to other people. One way that he did this was by telling Michelle that his mom had been in the room with him and seen him looking at a suit like how to kill yourself page online and that she saw it and she saw him reading it and that she didn't care <sighs> then go to your parents right and his mom refutes this in the documentary she's like i i had no idea like this is not a thing that like happened where i saw him looking at suicide stuff and was like that's fine like mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i mean i, I don't see any mother being okay with that um that sounds like a teenager you know doubling down again again yeah Um, for sure but even if she believed that was true and that his mom really didn't care if he lived or died go to your parents and and that's another question that i have that i just couldn't find any information on is like what was michelle's home life like all i got was like her parents were middle class and everything seemed relatively normal and like they definitely supported her through the trial but like i have no we have no idea like what her relationship with them was like or anything and I do know, I remember being so distrustful of authority. Like, sure, I know what my mom's going to say, but, like, she doesn't know anything. <laughs> yeah. I remember when I talked to my mom about uh, being bisexual, I was like, I never talked about it in high school, not because I thought you would disapprove of me having an interest in girls. It was, I didn't want to talk about my love life with my parents. Right. As simple as that. It's like, I, I didn't think you guys would disown me or anything. It's just too personal. <laughs> yeah, totally. And so... Again, it's like she could have talked to his parents or her parents or even the police, but this distrust of authority, this like teenage invincibility thing that we all have, I think it is kind of a barrier to reaching out for help sometimes. Mm -hmm. All right, so that's June 19th. June 23rd, 2014, Michelle asks, on text, How do you want to harm yourself? Something. I don't know yet. Please don't. I hate myself. I'll always hate myself. I'm never gonna view myself as good. I'm so far behind. What is harming yourself gonna do? Nothing. It will make it worse. Conrad's Make the pain go away like you said. Michelle says It will make the pain go away temporarily, but when you're done, you'll just regret it and feel even worse. Can confirm. Yeah, that's coming from- this is coming from somebody who clearly has been down this road and Mm -hmm. knows that it doesn't- 
it doesn't solve anything. It gives you temporary relief and it makes you feel worse. It's true. It is true. Ju- that's June 23rd. June 29th, 2014, Conrad texts Michelle, quote, There's nothing anyone can do for me that's going to make me want to live. It's very bad to hear, but I want to let you know that truthfully. We should be like Romeo and Juliet at the end. It sounds like he wants her to die too. Doesn't it? She agrees that she'd love to be as Juliet, and then he presses her and says, But do you remember how it ends? Do you know the ending? She texts back that, oh, they die? No, I don't want to die, and I don't want you to die, obviously. Like, I w- I'd love to be like your great love, but not like us die. Let's do the whirlwind romance part, not the misunderstanding that results in both people dying part. Yes, and so, like, even two weeks before, she's like, that's absurd. Like, no, like, she's still saying, like, I don't want you to die, don't do this. July 2nd of 2014, something changes. Conrad has been intent on killing himself for about a year and a half of their relationship, and Michelle has been up like against it at, until this point, and she starts to help him with his desire to kill himself now. She starts to get on board that path with him. She switches from trying to convince him to live to now believing that the best thing she can do for him, the best way she can help him, is to help him die. As always, thank you for listening, and if you like what you heard today, please leave us a positive review and a five-star rating, and tell your friends. All of that helps people know who we are so that we can bring you more of what you love. If you'd like more information on a specific episode, visit our website, crackpotcocktailhour.com, and click on the episode's link. If you'd like to know when new episodes are coming out and see the cocktail recipes in advance, subscribe to us in your podcast app and follow us on social media. We are Crackpot Cocktail Hour on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest, and we're at Crackpot Hour on Twitter. If you've got feedback for an episode or would like to suggest an episode topic, feel free to email us. We're crackpotcocktailhour at gmail.com. Until next time, crackpots, crack Crack it like it's hot. hot!